We are going to be in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. So let's go ahead and name what's happening in the room, because I'll tell you what, if you're here for the first time, you picked a doozy, okay? Uh, We're in a series, it's called Muted, it's a sermon series about why your friends don't want to be Christians. I don't know if you've ever been on Instagram, Um, uh, there's people on Instagram that annoy me uh, and offend me, and I I don't want to hurt their feelings by unfollowing them and unfriending them, so what I do is I just mute them, and there I keep the connection, everybody's at peace, but I don't have to know the crazy things that they're saying, you know what I mean? Okay, and here's the deal, you may have never been on Instagram, but like this Thanksgiving, there's going to be a crazy uncle that's going to have you like reaching for a remote to like, boop, mute them, you know what I'm saying? You've been around people like that, and nothing has people, has our coworkers and our friends who aren't Christians, nothing has our family members who aren't Christians reaching for the mute button faster than a traditional historic teaching on sexuality, and this is what it is, that sex is reserved for marriage, which is a lifelong covenant between one biological male and one biological female. Sex is reserved for marriage, So there went hookup culture and promiscuity, which is a lifelong covenant. There went adultery and divorce between one biological male and one biological female. There went homosexuality, transgenderism, and polyamory all in the same blow, right? Um, I want to name what's happening in the room this morning because we're going to talk today. We're going to talk this morning about sexuality, which is the most tender and vulnerable part of ourselves. It is also one of the most volatile issues in our culture and in politics and and in the denomination that we're part of. Today, we are talking about Jesus' vision for our bodies, the ways that we live outside of that vision. We're talking about sex before marriage and adultery and divorce and homosexuality and transgenderism and hookup culture and, and pornography, which means there are some of you that are already feeling anxious and defensive. There are already some of you feeling discouraged. It is honestly why I made it clear for weeks that this is what was happening, right? Because I didn't want you to just find yourself here and in need of, like, the building to catch on fire, right? um, But the other side, some of you are like, yeah, my pastor's got guts, right? He's speaking the truth. Neither of these positions are the way of Jesus. Neither of those postures are Jesus. So as we begin this morning, I want to remind you that what we're talking today is is not an issue. This is not abstract. We are not talking about it. We are talking about people. We are talking about your friends, your family, your parents, your children, your siblings, your coworkers, your best friends. Jesus responds very strongly when we reduce people to issues. Because Jesus came to save people. 
I also want to remind you that I am not a politician. I am not an academic. I am a pastor. I am here for the healing of your soul. I am here to guide your soul, if you'll let me, toward its home in God. I am here today as a teacher of the way of Jesus. Interesting, by the way, ours is a way that was founded by a teacher. He came teaching. And so I get to stand in the long line of men and women who get to teach the way of Jesus this morning. To call you, like Jesus would call you, to repent and believe. That's what Jesus says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. My my friend John Mark Comer, and by friend I mean I've read a couple of his books and been to a conference he spoke at once. He, He translates, I once walked by him and I said, do you know... John Mark Homer's my hero. Do you know the only words I've ever spoken to him? I can't believe this. I said, you're taller in real life, and then walked away. <laughs> Did I say, pray for me for an impartation of the Holy Spirit? No. I said, you're taller in real life. He said, people tell me that. I said, your video guy could probably fix that for you, and then we never again. Here's how John Mark, my friend, my tall friend, translates repent and believe. He says it's to, to repent and believe is to rethink everything you think you know about who God is and who you are and what the good life you crave actually is and to put your trust and confidence in me, Jesus, to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you to the life you ache for. So, so this morning, I want to invite you just to take a breath. Just to take a breath pause. In a minute, I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and and maybe you'll want to like stick your hands out as a way of receiving it, but I want you to hear the words I'm about to read in Matthew 19, not as a human opinion or a bludgeon or a weapon, not even some ancient text with some relevance for today, but as scripture, as scripture, the very words of God, which says this, Matthew 19, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now let me stop you here. This is the cultural hot button issue of Jesus's day. This is the cultural issue of the day. Not vaccines, not masks, not even the way sexuality is being like, handled in our cultural moment. I mean, it was the issue of the day, divorce. Divorce was the issue of the day. Because there were teachers of the law of Moses who said, basically, you can get divorced at any point for any reason. Like, if your wife burns your food, you can send her away. And other people said, never, ever, 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 ever shall you divorce. And so there's all of this fighting going on. And they try, they're trying to drag Jesus into this fight And Jesus says about the cultural issue of his day, haven't you read the scriptures? Okay, he said that to people whose professional job was to study the scriptures. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? As if to indicate to us that the hot button cultural moments of our day can be answered by this text, right? Haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female, 
And he said, thus explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could divorce his could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. Why did Moses do that? Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, that whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife or her husband has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, I love this, verse 10, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. Call it in, cancel him, it's done right? Jesus says, not everyone can accept this statement. What I'm about to say today, not everybody's going to be jiving with. Only those who God helps. I've been praying, our elders have been praying, our staff has been praying, our people have been praying that God would help us this week. Verse 12, some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, let anyone who accepts this, let anyone accept this who can. In Matthew 19, as Jesus is confronted with a hot-button issue of sexuality in his cultural moment, Jesus reaffirms marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. One genetic man and one genetic female. Any other expression of sexuality, look at verse 8. Any other expression of sexuality, a divorce, adultery, pornography, whatever it is, any other expression of sexuality is a reflection of our hard hearts. And so Jesus goes back to what God had originally intended to answer these questions. Now, here's the thing that makes me crazy. Be in conversations. And I'll gladly answer a lot more of these at lunch if you want me to. Um... But people will say to me, Jesus never speaks about homosexuality. Of course he does. He just did. He just told you in the positive what the scriptural vision for what marriage is, right? It's between one man and one woman. And if that weren't enough, back in Matthew 5, Jesus says, don't imagine that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't imagine that I've come to take the Old Testament teaching on sexuality, one man, one woman, and just erase it. He says, I've actually come to fulfill it. I've actually come to underline it and bold it and put it in italics. That is still binding for the new covenant people of God. In Matthew 19, see Jesus reaffirms the Bible's original teaching on marriage by going back to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis says in Genesis 1.27 that God created human beings in his own image. And in the, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning, to God's original intent, and says, you know what? The male-female binary reveals something about God. It's as if God in his own mind said, the best way for my image to be born in the world is through male and female together, through partnership between male and female. Now hear me on this. I want to hold in tension the high value of marriage and the high calling of singleness. Let's talk about that for a second. Because um, sometimes the partnership between male and female to bear God's image happens as we expand the kingdom together. That's why we have men and women in leadership and partnership together at our church. Sometimes that happens in a co in, as co-workers do what they do. Sometimes that partnership extends to marriage. Sometimes it doesn't. But if you're a single person today, if you're widowed, 
if you're waiting for the right person, you are still a whole person. You're still a whole person, yeah? But sometimes that partnership between male and female does express itself in marriage. And when it does, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage reveals ultimate reality. Ephesians 5, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. He says, this is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. When Steph and I got married, there was an aisle runner and where we stood and took our vows, we had had a friend paint on it. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. My marriage to my wife, in its goodness and its struggle, is a reflection of Jesus' love for us and our love for Jesus. It reveals ultimate reality. Even our maleness and our femaleness reflect that. It's why uh, Anglican theologian Oliver O'Donovan writes, to have a male body is to have a body structurally ordered to loving union with a female body and vice versa. Jesus' vision for our bodies is that our maleness and femaleness, which is wired into us, though sometimes altered by the fall, sometimes altered by sin, genetics get messed up. That's how, let's just name that, okay? There's a scientific reality at play here. There are people that are born intersex. There are babies that die. We had a miscarriage because the genetics didn't line up, right? So there's a genetic reality of the fall that we can't dismiss, but in God's original design, maleness and femaleness is wired into us, structured into our bodies. He creates us with sexuality, a vulnerable and tender part of us, a vulnerable and tender part of us that creates deep connection and intimacy when shared with another person. Our sexuality is made for one person. It's to be expressed in the covenant of marriage. And so Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the vision that Jesus has in his mind for our bodies and our sexuality. Jesus' mental map of reality structures creation and orders it in this way. Right? But there is another mental map of reality at play in our culture that thinks that everything I just said out loud is at best naive and at worst hate speech. Right? So let's unpack for a second the other narrative. The other narrative. How many of you ever heard the phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants? The heart wants what the heart wants. Woody Allen said this. Woody Allen said this in an interview with Time Magazine in 1992, and he said it to defend his relationship with the 21-year-old daughter of his ex-girlfriend when he was 56. I mean, even my most progressive friends would think that's a little weird, right? But John Mark Comer points out that this saying has just become part of not only just the way that we talk, the vernacular, but it's also the belief system of our generation, of our cultural moment. It is a self-perpetuating, he says, justification for anything from adultery to chocolate cake. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card for any behavior that falls outside the lines of moral tradition. 
but it came from a man who slept with his ex-girlfriend's 21-year-old daughter. And do you know how she found out about the affair? She found nude pictures of her daughter on his mantle. But the heart wants what the heart wants. Love is love. One contemporary theologian puts it this way. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. A few decades before Elsa drilled that annoying song into our minds, the sexual revolution began on that very idea. Let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. John Mark, he's got a great book right now called Live No Lies. I um, really would encourage you. Um, his problem isn't, he says, the problem isn't so much that we tell lies, but that we live them. And he kind of unpacks the sexual revolution in like a paragraph better than I ever could. He says, um, this is what happened the sexual liberation of the 1960s set in motion a cascade effect, the reversal of the long-standing moral consensus around promiscuity, which separated sex from marriage, worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion, which separated sex from procreation. I'm really ticking people off today is what's happening. Which moved on to the legalization of no-fault divorce, which, sorry, spelling error, which turned a covenant into a contract and separated sex from intimacy and fidelity. Then to Tinder and hookup culture, which separated sex from romance and turned it into a way to get your needs met. Next one. From there, it moved on to the LGBTQI plus revolution, which separated sex from the male-female binary. The current transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex. And the nascent polyamory movement, an attempt to move beyond two-person relationships. Amid the revolution, the questions nobody seems to even be asking are, is this making us better people? More loving people? Happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our liberation? The answer is not really. I've got statistics on all this and footnotes if you want them, but I'm just going to read it quickly. Uh, divorce disproportionately benefits men, even though it's sold to women primarily as a vehicle of empowerment and freedom. Those who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to marry and more likely to divorce if they do. The more sexual partners you have, the less able your brain is to produce the biochemicals needed for strong attachment. Sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy does little for the emotional health of those who receive it, which is the very point of those medical procedures, and why in the UK they have forbidden the NHS from giving those surgeries to people under 18 because the government is paying for them, and then finding out that people aren't experiencing what they wanted to experience and then flipping back and the government's paying for it twice. It's the best argument I've heard for government health care ever. In a survey of gay men who recently arrived in New York City, three quarters, this is New York, this is not Charleston. This is not like down home. This is New York City. Three quarters of gay men recently arriving in New York suffer from anxiety or depression, abuse drugs or alcohol, or were having risky sex, or were having or some combination of the three. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry primarily targeting adolescents and children. Uh, in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, Mary Eberstadt writes, contrary to the conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women, and its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in our society, even as it has given extra strength to those who are already strongest and most predatory. 
But the heart wants what the heart wants. And we just sang about a loving God. Who am I to tell people who they are to love? Who am I to tell people that the essence of who they think they are isn't who they think they are? See, the the thing about this idea of the heart wants what the heart wants, it is a radical reordering of the way that humanity understood itself for the first 1,700 years of the last two millennium. This is when I'm going to talk to you like you're smart because you are. The sexual revolu- the, prior to the sexual revolution, a, a, a cr- traditional Christian sexual ethic is built on an Augustinian worldview. St. Augustine. It's built on his understanding of what human beings are. And in Augustine's teaching, and this is, again, the way that the world basically understood itself until the Enlightenment, and then a guy named Freud took it really far, the way that the world understood itself is that we are not primarily thinkers, we are primary, primarily wanters. We are primarily desirers, right? So it's true that the heart wants what the heart wants, but until Freud, until about 300 years ago, the way that humanity understood itself was it is my job to rightly order my desires. You see, James K.A. Smith says that we are like sharks, and sharks, if they aren't moving, they're dead. Sharks have to stay moving. And so we have hearts that are like sharks. They're constantly moving toward a desire. And sometimes those desires are really good. Family, wealth, sort of. Uh, Comfort, sort of. Safety, sort of. Sometimes they're really bad. Power, exploitation, right? Our hearts are constantly moving toward uh, these loves. And, and until Freud, the primary understanding was that it is my job as a human being to rightly order my desires. And then Freud came in and said, actually, no, that's repression. And actually, to be a human is to let yourself fully go, Elsa, right? It doesn't matter what your orders are. You, it's instead of the life of discipleship being Jesus at the center with our loves all I kind of ordered around him, it was reorder that however you want and fully pursue that thing, right? The song we just sang is very St. Augustine. Here is all my love. It's yours with no conditions. Here's what we all do. Actually, here's some of my love. The rest of it is conditional on how I want to prioritize my desires. So Jesus, you can have me Sunday, but you cannot have me any other night of the week because like, I'm just too tired from work and I want to go drink with my friends and small group accountability is really hard. The Bible's very interested in our desires. So like take, for example, Jeremiah chapter two. The Lord says, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. A cistern is a water container. It's like a well. See, we are created to find satisfaction, to have our deepest desires fulfilled in in who God is. And sin interrupts that process. We start looking for other loves to satisfy us. Uh, What's his face? Uh, Johnny Lee. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Right? See, what we do is we go dig cracked cisterns of career and wealth. We dig cracked cisterns of safety and comfort. We dig cracked cisterns of career. We dig cracked cisterns of this kind of pleasure thing. And it eventually runs dry because we have forsaken the Lord who is the fountain 
of living water. And Jesus is trying to come to us and invite us to find our desires fulfilled in him. Now, let me stop here for just a second and say this. I want to change my mind. I want to change my mind on this issue. I would love to. I would love to be more loving. I would love to be more inclusive. I would love to be more hospitable. I would love to be more kind. And then I read that verse. If there is even the most tiny chance that my gay friends, my gay neighbors, my co- these people I know in my circles, if there's even the slightest chance that even in their happiness and joy, I mean, there are gay couples who are raising healthy children, who have healthy marriages, who are contributing to society, their lives are full of joy, but if there's even the tiniest, 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 tiniest chance that they are digging for themselves a cistern that won't run dry, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot just let them go on without providing some alternate vision of reality. Can you imagine a more hateful thing to do Now, we'll talk about homophobia and hate speech and Christian ugliness in a second. And and by the way, what do you think I'm trying to do every Sunday as a pastor? I'm trying to help you see that you've spent the week drinking from a cistern that's running dry. I'm trying to help you see that you have forsaken the fountain of living water for, albeit even really good things, And in the process, you're spending your life thirsty. Yeah? This is not a new conversation. It's the same conversation we have every week through a different lens. See, this is the thing. We're to order our lives around the fountain of living water because Augustine said that's how to be truly human. That's how to be truly satisfied. That's why he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And then a guy named Sigmund Freud comes along and says, actually, you know what? To order your loves rightly is is ultimately to repress yourself, and that's where all sorts of harm comes from. So you need to be fully human. You need to let your desires loose. Turn inward. Find your authentic self. Speak your truth, and everything will be fine. And yet, to follow Jesus is to follow a rabbi who's very interested in our desires. The first question that Jesus asks in the Gospel of John is about our desires. His first question is this, what do you want? Not what do you think, but what do you want? Jesus is very interested in our desires. So he tells this little story in Matthew 13. It's my life verse, actually. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls and finding one of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. So you and I are in the market of shiny pearls. And the career one's really nice. The porn one's really nice. And I've got this coworker. um, I've never seen him trim his toenails at the dinner table, so that's a nice pearl, right? Tinder, that's a, nobody would know. That's a nice pearl, right? And then we're confronted by one pearl of great value, and we will spend everything on it. Everything. Spend everything. The Puritans used to ask each other, 
Have you purchased the pearl? Have you purchased the pearl? Now, Jesus is very, very interested in our desires because he finds us in a marketplace of desires, all competing for us to give us a vision of the good life that we ache for. And Jesus comes and Jesus says, y'all, rethink everything you think you know about who God is and who you are and what the good life you crave actually is and put your trust and confidence in me to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you to the life you ache for. That, 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 that's buying the pearl. And here's the thing. Reordering your desires is possible. In fact, you did it this morning to come here. You reordered your desires and came here. You could have stayed home, right? You could have stayed in your sweats. You could have not left. You could have done stuff around the house. These are all good things. You could have gone to a football game. These are all good things. But you said they're not as good as some other things, right? We reorder our desires all the time. And when it comes to sexuality, there's a little told story of men and women in the name of Jesus, pursuing Jesus, reordering their sexuality around him. Um, And that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. I want to raise the horizon on what is possible. Uh, In our cultural moment, we don't hear stories like this, but then the Washington Post, not Christianity Today, not Fox News Online, right, posted this story traditional side B LGBTQ Christians experience a renaissance is the name of the article. Let me just read you the first four paragraphs, okay? When Grant Hartley first discovered he was gay at age 13, he adopted what he calls an ex-gay mindset. He saw his attractions as a sort of test, something he could overcome with faith, but no amount of prayer changed him. I started to think of it more as a gift, as a strength, said Hartley, who's now 28 and openly gay. Maybe there is something about the beauty I am able to see that straight men are not able to see. This kind of evolution isn't unusual among the roughly 4 million LGBTQ Christians in the U.S., but perhaps less commonly since coming out, Hartley has also chosen to pursue celibacy. Celibacy is a fancy word that means vocational singleness, staying single for life. While grateful for the experience of being gay, Hartley sees his gay identity as something that goes beyond just sex. I never say that I'm grateful for same-sex sexual desire, he said. It, it also includes aesthetics, culture, and worldview. Hartley is part of a small group of openly LGBTQ Christians who, while embracing their sexual orientation, also believe God designed sex and marriage to occur as exclusively between a man and a woman. The group called Side B, as opposed to Side A Christians, this is a, you don't know, back in the 1900s, they had these things called tapes. Okay, Side A, Side B. The group called Side B, as opposed to Side A Christians who celebrate same-sex marriage and sex, is a largely virtual community that sits in a rare liminal space between two sides of a culture war. There is another side to the story. There is another possibility. I'm going to rant now. This is not in the notes. Randy, grab your pearls. Um... She wore grandma's pearls for this purpose. I was a youth pastor for a while, and the minute a kid, the minute a kid was in 
the gym locker room and felt some sort of sexual attraction for the same sex. The tolerant in our society handed them a script and say, read this and don't read anything else. Made me crazy. As if there aren't many possibilities. As if the human body at age 13, male or female, flooded with hormones, doesn't find a tree sexually attractive sometimes. <laughs> Didn't say this in the first one, did I? <laughs> Makes me crazy because what is being buried beneath the headlines is another side of the story. See, Jesus calls... Jesus says, there are some who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are some eunuchs who choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. And I think Jesus had in mind Christians who experience same-sex attraction, those attractions don't change enough, and so they choose celibacy. Which, if you and I were Christians in the first 300 years of Christian history, the the majority of people in our room, in this room right now, are married, the minority are not. In the first 300 years of Christianity, we would have been totally flipped. The vast majority of us would have been single. Do you know why? Because the Apostle Paul says it's better to be single than to marry. Period. It's only like the last 300 years of Hallmark and Hallmark movies that make us think marriage is the highest possible goal for our life. But for early Christians, the highest possible goal in the Christian life was singleness. Christopher Yuan uh, was an openly gay man who also dealt drugs, and that's what landed him in prison. And his mom would write on toilet paper these prayers for him. And while in prison, he put his faith in Jesus and repented of his sin and then applied to go to Moody Bible Institute. And he got out of school one week, and the very next week, he unpacked his things in his dorm room, and his, his roommate said to him, so what did you do this summer? Christopher Yuan says, we are not called to be straight, we are called to be holy. I think people that do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven are people like Peter Volk. Peter Volk uh, is a celibate gay Christian who lives in Nashville. He started a monastery, a monastic community for celibate gay, celibate gay men to find family. It's called the Nashville Family of Brothers. He's following Jesus, but the durability of his attractions have not changed significantly, and so he's choosing what he calls vocational singleness, right? So there are some people who experience same-sex attraction. I didn't say this in the first one. I wish I had. Nobody, nobody chooses to experience same-sex attraction, period, and if you think that, you're wrong. I mean, can you imagine being 13, and, and in the locker room and listening to your friends talk about the boys that they were interested or the girls that they were interested in realizing you don't feel that way. And then actually coming to realize that you do feel that way, only you're a boy and you actually feel it towards the guys that are talking about girls or you're a girl and you actually feel it toward the girls talking about boys. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the terror and the shame and the isolation, and can you imagine the sense of belonging when you went to college and nobody in your Christian upbringing would talk about this except to pound the table and yell at how evil you were, and then you find somebody that says, actually, there's more people like us. Can you imagine the belonging they felt and the love that they felt and the connection they felt, and can you imagine why we've totally lost all ground in this conversation? Right? Nobody, nobody the gay people in your life did not wake up one day and choose to be gay any more than you woke up one day and chose to be straight. 
that we all have to steward our sexuality. We all have to pursue sexual integrity. And there are some people for whom their attractions do not change or only moderately. And then there are people like Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield, Rosario Butterfield, she was a, an out-partnered lesbian teaching queer studies and English literature at the University of Syracuse. And uh, a Promise Keepers event came to town, remember the 90s? And uh, she wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper about how, how like backward and gross evangelical Christians are. And a pastor responded and invited her to dinner. And so she was like, in the name of research, I'm going to go. And they never once mentioned her sexuality. Why is it? Why is it that when a gay person comes to church, the first conversation is why they're gay? Some of you are prideful jerks. I don't ask you about that the first moment you walk in the room. <laughs> why? Why, do, why is that? They kept having dinner with her, and then all of a sudden, one day, she says, you can read her story. She's got a book out. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She thought to herself one day, oh, my God, I'm a Christian. Right? Fast forward through many years and many hard conversations. She's now married to a guy, and, and, and they have many adopted children. He's a pastor. Take, for example, Jackie Hill Perry. Jackie Perry was an out lesbian. She was an artist, and then she found Jesus and realized that Jesus was calling her to holiness, not to be straight, but calling her to be holy. And one thing led to another. She's now married and has like four kids. Right? And this is where we need to be clear. Jackie Hill Perry says it so well. Heterosexuality is not a fruit of the Spirit. Heterosexuality is not a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is. And for some of us, that self-control could be exercised in a marriage that God has intended, and other people are going to stay vocationally single for their whole life. But Scripture does say, with God all things are possible, does it not? So let's review. Jesus' vision for our sexuality is where one biological genetic male and one biological genetic female flourish together in partnership. And that flourishing gives God's image to the world. It tells people what he's like. And sometimes that partnership extends to marriage, where one genetic male and one genetic female covenant together for life and offer their sexuality as a gift only to one another. And sometimes, sometimes... This partnership does not include marriage, but eunuchs for the kingdom of God flourish in the family of Jesus. This is all a product of ordering our desires around Jesus, the pearl of great price, saying, here's all my love, it's yours, no conditions. Order my desires and affections how you please. It's learning to want not what the heart wants, Woody Allen, but learning to want what Jesus wants. And to live into this vision, to thrive within the story of Jesus, requires us simply <laughs> to repent and believe. I said simple, but it ain't easy. I want to think about that repentance for just a moment, okay? In 1978, Richard Lovelace called the church to what he called a double repentance, a double repentance. On the one hand, that gay Christians renounce the active lifestyle, sexual holiness, and the other that straight Christians renounce homophobia. Let's start with the latter. 
the love of Jesus, the good news of his life and death and resurrection, cannot and must not coexist with any kind of homophobic fear, rage, disanger, dislike, disdain, or disgust. If that's what arises within you, that is not holiness, that is sinfulness. When gay kids were being bullied in schools, it should have been Christians first in line to say absolutely not. That is a human being made in the image of God, and that's not what we do in my town. But you know what we did? We fist bumped each other in the church parking lot. And again, we have no moral ground to stand on. And we won't have moral ground to stand on until, like Preston Preston Sprinkle says, that when gay people walk away from us and say, man, those are the kindest people I have ever met. Until that happens, we're not there yet. Hear me, the fruit of the Spirit is not managing someone's sin. The fruit of the Spirit is not managing someone's sin at the door to filter out the stuff that we don't like. Why? Why? Why is it that, I, that we want to give the straight young men in our congregation who are struggling with pornography years and years and years to get better, but we expect gay people to fix it before they even hit the parking lot? Why? Why is there no room for sanctification given to LGBTQ people the way that we give it to straight people? Why? Because of homophobia. It's not upholding a biblical standard. It's because we just don't want to deal with the mess. Let me tell you what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is a genuine affection for a gay person, which you can offer to them without worrying about whether or not you're affirming their behavior, because by the way, they don't care what you think of their behavior. And here's what the fruit of the Spirit of love is not. The fruit of the Spirit of love is not love the sinner, hate the sin. And let me tell you why. You view your sin as an activity you engage in from time to time. They view their sin as essential to their identity, and to hate the sin is to hate them, and so there's no more conversation. So let's try what Rosaria Butterfield says. Rosaria Butterfield says, let's try love the sinner, hate your own sin. Now we're talking. Now you see, to do this right, I got to hit you from both sides, don't I? To do this right means I've got to be too conservative for my progressive friends in the room, and I've got to be too liberal for my conservative friends in the room. And everything I just said right now made some conservatives in the room like look for a lighter to catch their hair on fire, right? Now it's your turn. Because in the case of the former where Richard Lovelace called gay Christians to renounce the active lifestyle, I want to call everyone in our church, I want to call all of us to sexual holiness, which for some of us is easier than others. I mean, some of you haven't had a sexual thought since the 90s. (laughs) Great, great. But for other of us, we're walking uphill. We're walking uphill on that. We're called to sexual integrity and sexual stewardship. I want to call you to use this tender, vulnerable part of yourself, not in alignment with your desire, not, in, not with porn or, or, or hookup culture, not, not with adultery. I want to invite you to align those desires around the person of Jesus and the purposes of his kingdom. And if you are struggling with your sexual identity, hear me, you are welcome here. And I want to know, because the most dangerous place for you to be is in isolation. Y'all, I take this super seriously. You know why there are kids in our kids' ministry that are going to come out as gay in the next five years? 
This is an academic. This isn't an over there in New York City thing. This is an us thing. This is a missional thing. This is real. If you are wrestling with a biblical sexual ethic because you have gay friends and family and neighbors, keep wrestling. Don't give up. Don't fall to the one side, this homophobic anger, you're an abomination, grossness, but don't on the other side just not care and walk away from the topic. Press in. If you are struggling with your sexual identity, if you are sleeping with your girlfriend, if you are sleeping with your boyfriend, if you are engaged in pornography or adultery, if you feel trapped, I want to invite you to, th- I want to invite you to just to repent and believe. I want to invite you to rethink everything you think you know. Rethink, not some things, everything you think you know about who God is and, and who you are and what the good life you crave actually is. And to put your trust and confidence in Jesus to heal you and save you and free you and lead you to the life you ache for. Amen. It's Heather's turn to lead response time this week, so that's hard. (laughs) So we do this thing called response time where we get to breathe after messages like that. (laughs) Um, No, we do it so that we can hear and do the Word of God so that we can reflect and respond to it. Um, And as I was thinking about just the message. Um, I just see this continuum, um, and I, I realize that everyone in this room, everyone online, we are probably falling in very different places on the continuum, but I think that no matter where we are, we can ask ourselves what is the order of our desires and what that looks like, and I think that we can all um, be asking the Father if there might be an invitation to reorder. So we can go ahead and think about that um, and pray together. Father, I am struck by the love and gentleness that is just in your nature. And I'm so thankful that you have a higher view of our bodies than we do. You have a higher view of our minds, the way that we think, the way that we interact with others. 
than we do. And I just pray that you would bring us up to where you are, that you would be building in us the true fruit of the Spirit more and more. So we just thank you for that. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen.